GovX show. I'm James Smith, Content Director of the GovX Digital Conference in November. I think I'm as surprised to be here as you are as we crack our sixth episode together. Apparently that's a significant podcasting milestone as most podcasts don't actually get that far. Clearly this podcasting business has kind of low expectations that perfectly suit my skill sets. Attentive viewers will see that I'm in a celebratory mood and that the shirt is back from episode one. Apologies to listeners, but it's a, it's a lovely silk boutique number from Java. If that's not enough to mark the occasion, well, we pushed the boat out all the way to Canada for our first international interviewee. Today, we've got Liz McKeown from the Digital Academy at the Canada School of Public Service. Liz was formerly the CIO of Shared Services Canada, and for the last 20 years, has held a variety of senior management positions in Canada's federal government. Ever the cosmopolitan, I tried very hard to get her to say her boot. Let's see how I got on. Liz, it's great to have you join us on the GovX show today. Obviously, very excited to have you join us for the conference, but why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what your role is at the Canada School of Public Service? Yes, yes, and it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be invited. So I'm uh, currently a faculty member at the Canada School of Public Service. So that's a school set up specifically for doing um, broad-based horizontal training across the Canadian public sector. Um, and I'm within a niche part of that school, the Digital Academy, where our mandate is to raise the digital acumen of the public service. So I'm here for a two-year stint, super, super lucky, I'm one year in, and I'm designing and delivering and iterating and improving frequently content across the public service and uh, having the chance to work with lots of other jurisdictions as well. Um, my background prior to that is I was at, uh, actually, I was a CIO for three and a half years in a very grueling IT department in the federal public service, which was super exciting and, and, and got lots done. But this is a little bit more fun for a short period. Great. And so obviously, when you're not at the uh, Canada School of Public Service, uh, what do you like to do away from work? So I live a very non-digital life away from the office. I live about uh, half an hour outside of our nation's capital on a nice piece of property, four acres on the water. Um, I do a lot of gardening, not so much help from my family for the gardening part, but we all really like to be out on the water canoeing, stand up board and uh, like to be out on the water in the canoe with my dogs. You've just described sort of, I guess an Englishman's fantasy of, uh, of what the Canadian sort of uh, lifestyle is like. So I'm extremely envious, but it's obviously Canada's a pretty big place. Um, but what, what would you recommend uh, in terms of local attractions to uh, our audience if they were predisposed to book tickets and, and fly across to, to see you? So obviously you have to spend time in Ottawa. It's a nation's capital and like every nation's capital, we have the, the um, ability to spend money because we know tourists are coming. So it's more beautiful than every other city in the country. But I think it's super important. I, I'm a fairly avid cyclist, but it's important to take the time to tour the city on, on, on bicycle because you get a very different lens and you can get all, to all the major attractions, museums, parliament buildings on, on, the, on the bike routes and the bike paths are fabulous. We have beautiful landscapes here, best seen on a bike. Right, well, I'll make, make notes of that. So, I mean, you, you make a big, bold claim for Ottawa, because I've, I've heard some people say that Vancouver is quite, quite, quite special in terms of uh, beautiful cities, but uh, what, what would be your anticipatory response to that? Vancouver is a gorgeous city, but it rains a lot. And I, I know maybe you're partial to a lot of rain, but here uh, in Ottawa... No, we really aren't. Or we, yeah. we suffer it, but we're not particularly partial <laughs> to it. So, okay, you, you've sold me on the, on the benefits of Ottawa. Pretty, like... Vancouver but without the rain that that sold it to me fantastic so 
Uh, so this year at the GovX Digital Conference, we're putting together our first, I guess, conference reading list. So um, this is where we're sort of trying to create a, a great reading list uh, from all the various speakers and delegates and sharing that with everyone so that uh, hopefully everyone can find something that's surprising and interesting. What was the last thing perhaps that you've read of professional interest that you recommend? I'm going to cheat on this one. I'm going to talk about two super quickly. One was that a colleague just uh, shared with me a couple of days ago as we're working on a new leadership product. And it's a super short uh, research report by MIT Sloan. And it's titled The New Leadership Playbook for the Digital Age. And it really dives into the leadership behaviors that are eroding, enduring, and emerging. And uh, it's a great eye-opener on the things that we need to stop doing in order to become more relevant as a government. And then the second read, um, it's actually, it's about four years old now, but I still think it's fabulous and I recommend it all the time, is I just love um, Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. I have, I have a degree in mathematics and computer science, so I love the math part, but she is so good at telling the stories about evaluating our data, our bias in data, yeah. and our algorithms. It's a super cool read. I've not come across that one. That does sound interesting. Oh. Right. Okay. Definitely on my personal reading list. Um, so... How did you get where you are? How did you get started uh, in, in your career in federal government? What brought you into the public sector? Yeah, it wasn't a direct path. I was a teacher, first of all, and then private sector leadership, and then uh, ended up um, in 1999, my husband and I were working in the same company, um, just as we were going through a little bit of a tech bubble burst. And uh, I was nervous, nervous about both of us losing our job being in the same company. So I decided to start looking for other work and just happened to land a job in the public service and I was at the bottom of the list for the process. Processes to get into government are super painful here. And I was at the bottom of the list, but regardless, I got in and 20 years later, I haven't looked back. It's been, it's been amazing. I've been surprised by the ease at which I was able to expand my experiences, try different approaches, but even influence change in the government. And uh, although I don't feel like I'm a, like a, a long-term public servant, um, there's so many opportunities still in the public service that I think I'm probably going to stay here till I retire. Fantastic. That's really heartening to hear. Um, so I suppose, what was the, so when you joined coming into the private sector, what was the, was the reality of, of your initial experience different to what you'd expected? It was, but I, I was lucky in that I was brought into a sales function in government and sales functions don't normally exist in government. Mm -hmm. So it was bringing the private sector in where we were actually it was in a role where I had to set up relationships with other departments in order to convince them to use our telecommunication services. Um, that's not important, but the, what's important is that it was a non-government role coming into government. So I was able to influence how government could assume that kind of a function. Um, I, was, I was surprised by the pain, meaning the pain of bureaucracy, the pain of paperwork. Um, I was disappointed by how that affected people's ability to, uh, to, to be passionate about what they were doing. But then over time, I realized how you had pockets of innovation and passion and how people actually worked against that in order to make it better. All in all, I think the public service is an amazing place to work. Well, as, as a friendly observer, I mean, I've been covering the work of digital government uh, in particular for the last 20 years. So uh, it's, you know, some of those incredible journeys uh, I've, I've observed as an as a external party, but uh, it's, it's certainly kept me absorbed and fascinated. But um, what's also kept me pretty absorbed and fascinated, I suppose, is, uh, is the roller coaster of a year that we've had to date. Uh, obviously, it's thrown up its fair few uh, challenges. How has it been for, for you and your team? How have you coped? And uh, perhaps, you know, what are some of the learning points been? Yeah, 
for me personally, 2020 has been a pretty fabulous year, I have to say. Um, my husband came home early from a one and a half year gig in Germany. So all of a sudden we were family again, which was awesome. Um, but I also have about 10 extra hours a week that, um, because without, I don't, without commuting to work and it's time I've been able to give back to my, my physical health, my mental health, my family health and to my employer. I would just love to see the statistics on how much more time people are working without commuting time. Like I, I think that's fascinating. I've seen sunrises and sunsets that I wouldn't normally have seen because I would have been commuting or at work. And that has had an effect on me personally, which I think has had an effect on everybody in our team at work as well. Our, our work team has uh, always been a fairly um, dynamic and distributed team. We have about a third to half of our members are outside of the national capital region. So we were used to working in a virtual manner. Um, but what we did immediately is we started having meetings that were just for social gatherings in order to replace the water cooler discussions. And then we quickly got to the point where we realized that they were getting kind of awkward. We didn't actually want to be forcefully talking about our social interactions. So we backed off on that. And I feel like we're now back at the state where we were, we were at when we were in person, where we just naturally do a little bit of chit chat before we start our meetings or our discussions. And we, we do those social interactions naturally. I think the, the biggest shift that we've seen in the team is those that had a disadvantage previously those that worked virtually before and had a disadvantage because they were always the one on the screen when everyone else was in the room, we've level set for them. And now we're able to see the, the incredible skills of those in our team who had to overcome so many obstacles on a regular basis. So it's, it's very level setting. Do you think that uh, it's, it's posed a challenge for, for some personality types to, to uh, for a sustained period of time to, to lack that, that physical face-to-face -face, uh, engagement with colleagues? Oh, I think a lot of people are really challenged with that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm, I'm an introvert. My preference is to be on my own. But I know that for some people, having that face-to-face -face interaction is super important. And love Zoom, love Teams, but it's just not the same thing. So I, I think some people are having a, a really hard time with that. Absolutely. I think the mental health uh, repercussions mm. out of this shift in how we work um, will be around for a while. So we're looking ahead at uh, GovX Digital. So you're going to be joining us to examine the impact of, I suppose, uh, sort of heightened citizen expectations on um, the public sector's traditionally risk-averse culture. Why does that matter? So citizens' expectations are only increasing and at a pace way faster than the public sector can, can evolve. Public sector doesn't evolve quickly, generally, and citizen expectations are only um, rising exponentially. Even during the periods of like super rapid evolution in the public service that we've seen through during COVID, it's, we're still not fast enough. We still can't keep pace with citizen expectations. And it's important to understand what's, what, what's at stake here, what's at risk, it's all about relevancy. So public service is here to serve citizens. And if our cultures don't, are impeding our ability to do this and do this in a way that meets citizen expectations, then we're, we're increasing the gap between what citizens expect and what government gives. And, that's, and I don't want to be an alarmist, but this, is a, this can result to an erosion of connectedness between government and its citizens. And that, that could be catastrophic. We're here to serve citizens. So, uh... I suppose from our point of view, uh, the risk profile of, of, of governments obviously changed very dramatically. 
Um, and I think that the, the long-term implications of that are still being worked through by, by government organizations, but what's your sense of whether the, the need to get things done urgently in response to sort of you know, acute citizen need, how much of that urgency is going to sort of remain within the culture of the public sector as we move out of 2020 into the future? Well, that's our choice, right? That, that's, that's what we have to decide as a public service. Are we going to let ourselves slide back to uh, accepting delivering mediocre services that don't meet citizen expectations? Or are we going to ride this bubble that we're in right now where we have all of a sudden extraordinarily risen to the task and, and made rapid decisions, iterated and improved frequently and delivered without knowing what the end game was? We, we were able to set aside that risk aversion for this period of the last six, seven months. We have to figure out how we maintain that, that knee-jerk reaction to not go back to the way we delivered services. I, we, we don't have a choice. My, my, my sense here in the UK is that civil servants themselves are, are quite inspired, motivated by what's been achieved and uh, looking to hold on to these gains, this, this sort of broad-based awareness that we can get things done and that there is a different way of working and a more iterative approach uh, can, can deliver results quickly and at pace for, for citizens. So I'm, I'm sort of optimistic by nature, but I'm certainly hopeful that we will hold on to uh, a lot of the, the, the learning points from 2020. We have to tell those stories. We have to capture those stories and that passion and that excitement that we hear across public servants and continue to tell those stories within the public service so people remember what that feeling was and remember that feeling of empowerment so they can continue. So you're part of uh, quite a large cohort of, uh, of uh, Canadians, uh, something I'm calling the Canadian invasion, which I suppose are words <laughs> that have never been heard before. Uh, so there's obviously a number of, uh, of our audience here in the UK that's been looking forward to engaging with uh, representatives from across the Canadian public sector. Um, there's obviously a lot of things in common, uh, but do you think there's anything, I suppose, distinctive about the Canadian public sector approach? I think I'm gonna provide a really Canadian answer to this. <laughs> so we're never first out the gate. That's not what we do. And I think that in the last, of the last 10 years within the federal, Canadian Federal Public Service, we've gotten even better at observing other jurisdictions and what they're doing and being second. Being second so that we don't have to necessarily do that big investment, but can ride on the coattails of the best practices and the lessons learned. And we did a lot of watching with what happened with um, um, the healthcare system in the United States. And we actually built systems and organizations and, and governance within the Canadian public service to mirror what happened in the States. Mm -hmm. and, and even brought some of those really um, incredibly smart people to Canada to lead those programs. And I think, I think the biggest change we've seen in the last few years is that we've continued that, but within Canada. So I see that we've got a lot more cross-jurisdictional ha um, activity happening in Canada as well, where we've got federal, municipal, and provincial governments working much more closely than they ever used to, and not necessarily in a top-down approach, meaning the feds did this, and the provinces are gonna accept it, but figuring out which jurisdiction is first to market, and then the other jurisdictions leveraging it. And I think we're, it's almost become like our niche, where we've realized that we're never gonna have the capacity 
We're never going to have the money or the people or the intelligence in order to do it all ourselves first. And it's always better if we leverage the others anyway. When you said you were going to give me a Canadian, typically Canadian response, I was, I was rather hoping there was going to be a, a boot in there somewhere, but uh, sadly, sadly not. But, uh, but obviously talking about the, I suppose, the, the learnings across jurisdiction, I mean, that's obviously the, the beauty of, of local, regional, provincial government as you, as you have in Canada, the opportunity to sort of see experimentation in, in, in different locations and see what works and hopefully sort of graft some, some of those ideas onto what's what's uh, being done elsewhere in, in, in the public sector. And likewise, I suppose, uh, the role of GovX Digital as a conference is to try and sort of, you know, do that at scale uh, internationally. I mean, how important do you think it is to, to maintain dialogue between jurisdictions? So, as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, none of our organizations have the capacity to replicate or redo what others have done. None of us have the breadth of scope or experience that other jurisdictions bring to the table. All of our jurisdictions are better if those around us are strengthened and modernized. And all of our jurisdictions run complex programs that cross jurisdictions. So how important is it? It's critical. It's absolutely essential to maintain inter-jurisdictional dialogue, exchange, sharing, and open work. Our relevancy depends on it. So I mentioned that uh, a number of our, our speakers and delegates I've been speaking to are, are quite looking forward to the fact that there is this Canadian invasion. Um, what what in in response? I mean, what are you looking to get out of uh, engaging with, obviously, so many of your international peers, but also the the UK public sector at, at the conference? So, what I like to get out of every day, I want to get out of this conference on steroids. I want to hear good stories. We talked a little bit before about good stories to help engage public servants, but good stories to help public servants understand why a switched to a switch to delivering and designing services that meet citizen expectations is absolutely critical. So I wanna hear good stories from other jurisdictions that I can share in the classroom and build into our content. Mm -hmm. um, but as well, I wanna I want share stories from Canadian jurisdictions as well, because I would suspect that this is a need everywhere. And those stories of change that they help people pivot. I wanna know about people's changes, uh, the stories around failure, around uh, pivoting, around challenges, success, and, and of course, around courage because it's very difficult it's courageous when public servants step up and change i also want to i don't get out much <laughs> even even, even pre-covid i don't get out much so i want to i want to get out of my canadian bubble here and i want to feel global in order to make sure that i continue to act globally i don't act as globally as i'd like um, so this is an opportunity for me uh, and lastly i want to get i want to get feedback on my message i want to get feedback on on my positions my theories etc am i on the right track do my stories resonate with you um, and if not then figure out how to pivot and change in order to make it fit a better audience i like storytelling i, th I think we can help you with the the, the global aspect certainly i think we're, we're currently up to about 20 countries represented uh, uh so obviously there's, there's bucket loads of brits but there's there's plenty of uh, perspectives from you know the, the wider world i'm really excited to sort of bring them all together you get enough clever people who feel passionate about something together and you know, amazing things happen right but um so so certainly uh looking forward to, to that and i think when it comes to the storytelling side of things i suppose our, our combination of sort of presentations but obviously bringing all the presenters together for a series of panels discussions hopefully that allows you to both have that that storytelling and get access to the, the stories of, of your fellow speakers but also allows you the opportunity to then follow up and sort of you know, ask questions as well as you know, respond by, by sharing st more stories of your own.
Excellent. Stories hit home with, with, with students. Great stuff. So uh, I suppose, what's the lesson that you've learned in your career that you wish you'd known earlier in your career? So I, I do a lot of mentoring and, and oftentimes mentees ask, should I take this opportunity? Should I take this shift? Should I do this switch in my career? And the advice that I give is don't sweat it, man. If it feels right, do it do it because we only build our experience like we need to build a really broad portfolio of experiences across many many domains mm -hmm. and over time after you've built that broad portfolio you're going to be able to then start choosing the position that you want the career path that you want the job that you want but that's only by exploring and doing the fun stuff don't agonize about the changes if you see something that's out there in front of you and it looks like something that would interest you that you could learn from that you could go from do it don't worry about that singular career path because you don't know that career path when you're young and you shouldn't know it. You shouldn't assume that you know where you're going to want to be 20, 30 years down the road. I think that, you know, as, as we move forwards, I mean, that sort of linear career progression, I think it's sort of a very out, outdated, outmoded concept anyway. I think that uh, you know, one of the, the glories of the public sector is the ability to branch out into different domains. And I think that increasingly that's where, Know, that's where it's at in terms of uh, people's ability to, to, to stretch and uh, you know, realize themselves. Absolutely. This job and my last job, they were my dream jobs. And I would never 20 years ago have been able to foresee that I would have had this dream job or even that this dream job existed. Fantastic. Well, uh, so obviously it's been great having you on sharing your, your thoughts with our audience. Um, really excited to having you join us obviously for GovX Digital in November. Um, and uh, obviously you'll be presenting, but also sitting on our panel discussions. So, uh, so looking forward to that. So thank you very much. Thank you.